Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where we bring in a guest host that is still in training. I'm your host for this week, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Kloffenstein. Jake, how are you today? That is wow, Mark. I'm actually very proud of you. So it took me about halfway through when you were saying my name to understand your pun, but wow, you you did a good job today. Normally the puns are a little weak. I'm giving you an A plus today, man. That's awesome. I'm flexing my pun game hard today. It's not the only one. Trust me. Wow. God, this is what an action packed episode. I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm great. And hey, we got all kinds of neat new news for you. Plus, spoiler, we have a special guest coming up, but we'll get to that in a second. So we now have more places that you can find us. We now have a Facebook page. Finally, if that's kind of your main way of doing social media at the uh, oh so mysterious facebook.com slash gaming moguls love to have you join us on there you'll see announcements and pictures and all the other stuff we also now have a youtube channel as well coincidentally titled gaming moguls don't expect us to make videos yeah. no no frankly we're posting our podcasts on there but being it's the second largest search engine in the world it's important to have a presence there and if that helps somebody find us and get on board then uh see that was pun number two <laughs> all the better so good wow <laughs> right on we also got something else cool jake you want to tell the world about it absolutely so we started the gaming moguls mogul scale pretty recently which is where we break apart the rules complexity of the game and the number and then the um actual strategy complexity as a letter that follows the number and we actually made a living document on our website which is gamingmoguls.com slash mogul scale and what we're going to do there is it's all the games that we've arbitrarily assigned a mogul scale to as of now, and we will keep on adding to it as we keep on attributing more weights to games. Yeah, and if you see something that's on there that you disagree with, it's a great way to start a conversation with us. Tell us why we're dead wrong on what we rated it at, and certainly we will uh, take that in consideration as well. Again, that's gamingmoguls.com slash scale for a living document of all the games we've rated online. So let's explain your pun. I'm super excited about this next thing. One of the coolest things about being in podcasting so far is that it gives you a bit of a backstage pass into the industry and allows you to meet people that maybe aren't quite as accessible and learn things that is new knowledge. And you get to also work along with other people that are doing podcasting. And we're super excited to have one of my heroes of this industry on board today. I'd like to introduce Mr. Craig Taylor from the Crane Rush podcast. Craig, how you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you, Mark. How are you? Excellent. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. And then for a little background information on the train rush, why don't you explain kind of what the goal of the train rush is, Craig? Sure, happily. So we started the train rush uh, last UK Games Expo, uh, so last circa last April, as a means of capturing the conversations Dave and myself have after train games on the basis that we considered them to be interesting and we hope that other people would find them interesting because I'm nothing if not arrogant. So <laughs> also to a certain extent, we worked out that there wasn't a ton of train game content out there for people to listen to. Not active anyway, lots of back catalog stuff, but we were hoping to come at it from a slightly different angle. Dave's quite old in the hobby in terms of train gaming and I'm quite new in it. So we figured that Looking at my journey of thoughts coming from Eurogaming and him providing the anchor for a bit more experience than 18xx, slightly more um, cool, shall we say, although perhaps those positions have inverted somewhat. We'd make some interesting listening, if nothing else. 
Well, I can confirm it's interesting listening. I think you guys are one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to it every single time that they're posted. I discovered you guys, I think, at episode four, and I told everybody in the game group about you. So it's awesome that we actually going to make an episode together today. And I think right after Jake told me about that was right after the first time we had played 1822. So it was great to just dive in and listen to you guys. And I've been hooked ever since and don't miss an episode. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. But you don't just play train games, right? You also play other styles of game, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I come from a Euro background. I've been playing games since I was a kid, like most of us, I guess. A lot of us grew out of it in inverted commas or lacked time when we were going through education and then come back to it in later life. So I've been, my second game in life, for want of a better term, has been for like the last eight years. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't hit the ground running with 18xx eight years ago. And I was, you know, it's all the gateway games, the things like Catan, all the stuff that was hot back then. And over the last few years, it's been kind of getting heavier and denser walking up the mogul scale. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. So why don't we talk about some news that we have? This is pretty exciting news. Mark, do you want to announce it? Yeah. We in the Gaming Moguls are located in the greater metropolitan area of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and conveniently and coincidentally, so is All Aboard Games, one of the largest publishers of 18xx games. We actually know Scott Peterson personally. We've gamed with him in the past and had the luck of being able to do that. And as such, we were able to play a pre-release copy of a very important new train game Kickstarter that's coming up. And that game is 18 Chesapeake, which has been announced will be hitting Kickstarter April 15th at 9 a.m. I've had just a real great time playing it every time that we've had a chance to play that. Well, it's one of the uh, beginner games. And to be fair, you know, design is a beginner game. It's not an indictment that I haven't had access to. I've been playing other beginner games. Tried to get a copy off Scott, but by the time I was in touch with him, the uh, prototype kits weren't available anymore. So I'm really looking forward to it too, to the point where we've actually asked Scott if he'll join us on the podcast to have a chat with us about the Chesapeake and the Rolling Stock Kickstarters and answer some questions from the from the fans. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, we loved 18 Chesapeake. We've played it three or four times so far, and I've loved every play. It is deep enough for kind of experienced people to still have fun with it, but it's gentle enough and not super super complicated where kind of newbies can grasp the ideas and the concepts a little bit more quickly than other games. Well, and we found that it actually scales remarkably well at different player levels because I know you and I have played head to head and even though it was a bit zero sum, it still was a good experience. And the last time we played it, what was a six person game or something like that? Right, it was, it was six. Crazy. Yeah. Holy cow, that was fun. Right. That was one of the best experiences. I think we've talked about on the podcast before, but what we did was every time you withheld, you had to take a shot of apple brandy and it was great. Would recommend. Whoa, well, maybe you did. I, was, I didn't have to withhold it all. So speak for yourself. You didn't have to withhold once. No way. It was great. <laughs> I might have just to be part of. <laughs> Drunk 18xx, that's crazy. I mean, my, my arithmetic's bad enough normally, let alone anyone drinking. <laughs> it, it was pretty late night and it was kind of a dumb idea to play it that late, but it was fun. Everybody had a good time experiencing it. And it was it was a teaching game anyway, so it helped pass the conversations about why you're doing certain actions a little bit quickly. So worked out fun. Would recommend. Yeah, and it made it cool. a little more social experience for those that were maybe intimidated by it. I mean, it sounds like a title I could have a lot of time for, right? The My go-to teaching game that's still interesting for old hands, but is fun for new players or more to point teachable is currently 1836 Junior, but it only goes up to four. So one that goes up to six. And probably, yeah, I can see that being a thing I'm going to buy. I would recommend it. We, so 
Paradoxically, we don't own our copy anymore. Jake was nice enough to contribute it to me so that I could send it off to my heavy cardboard secret Santa in Australia. Rob Crosby now owns our copy of 18 Chesapeake. The gaming moguls, nothing if not magnanimous. (laughs) Sharing the love. (laughs) Well, and I did remember reading today as well, um, Scott did say that international shipping will be great and much more cheaper than it normally would be. So this maybe is a good time for people around the world to get into 18xx games, especially some starter ones. I guess my one, not reservation, but question mark, and I'm going to keep it for my podcast to ask the guy himself, is how do you balance that all aboard games, everybody loves their current presentation with making something that's commercially visually appealing? Because, you know, they're, they're, they're different things, right? The broader audience that you're trying to drag in is used to shiny, shiny, high art production euros. So is he going to take a Mayfair approach and uh, or lookout spiel approach and dress it in kind of texture or is he going to do something different? I couldn't agree with you more on that one. That is a big concern. I, I love their current presentation, but I don't know if that's going to do him any favors with bringing new people in. Interesting one to see how he manages it. He knows what he's doing. He's uh, of the um, publishers. He's probably my favorite in terms of what he does as a product. And I'm sure he's got a plan. I'm yeah, sure I hope does. so. I can't wait to see what it looks like. All right, that's 18 Chesapeake by All Board Games. That Kickstarter will be coming to you April 15th at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. Let's talk about some games we played this week. And for our listeners out there that are, we do have some listeners that are train allergic. I know, Craig, uh, plug your ears when you hear that, but <laughs> we do occasionally get some comments that we talk too much about trains. I don't know if there is such a thing. But weirdly, you play other things other than train games as well, do you not? You've got some evidence of what I played this week in front of you, and I didn't just do that for your approval. I, I played those things because I genuinely thought they were fun. Hosting the podcast on trains to a certain extent shapes what I play, right? I mean, I can't research the titles without playing them, and if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it properly, so lots of plays. But you'll hear in a few minutes how I get my kicks playing other stuff. Awesome. So what'd you play this week, Mark? The things I played this week, let's start out with probably the one that we got a chance to play together here on Wednesday night. Jake's been dying to play Imperial 2030 by Mac Gertz, published by Rio Grande Games for a long time. And that was sort of the cornerstone that we got a chance to play on Wednesday night. Right. Yeah. And I'm interested to see your kind of thoughts because we had some disagreements about what we thought about it from the end. And so why don't you kind of explain your original takeaways from the game? Sure. In way of a little bit of background, it's a game where there's a map. Think, uh, you know, Risk or Twilight Struggle. You have units and you have governments and so forth, and there's a bunch of actions that you can do to, you know, move your armies around and you can fight other people in a somewhat simplified fashion. The big twist on it is that it's actually a financial game. For the theme of it, we're different Swiss investment bankers who are neutral in the conflict, but we are investing in the six great superpowers that are duking it out. The USA, Europe, Brazil, India, Russia, and China. Those are the powers. So you're investing in each one of those and you're going in a TikTok way through each one of the different countries. And when it's whoever owns the most shares of that country gets to operate it. You guys are singing my song. There's shares, yeah. there's investment. What's not to like? I know. So that's what I thought, because we, we have some people that are disliking of area control games, cough, mark, cough, and people who are disliking um, financial based games, cough, other people cough. So I thought this would be good for both parties. So I'm interested to see what you think, Mark. Comically, I think the opposite happened. I think you managed to offend everybody. (laughs) Right. I think so. (laughs) Okay, let me dive right into this one. So, uh, yeah, the, the win condition in the game is having the most money based on the amount of shares you have multiplied by the success factor of those companies, those countries that you've invested in. 
So you might have nine shares of China, for example, and five shares of the United States and two shares of Russia. And depending on how successful they are, they raise their share value. And you multiply that share value times the number of shares you have and plus the any cash on hand. And much like a train game, that's your final victory condition. If that's how it actually worked, it would have been fun. My personal bias is that I don't like dudes on a map game. I don't like area control games because right. things are swinging around so much that. Well, you, and you it doesn't seem to gel with you well. With, no. When someone attacks you in a game, you dislike it. And you did really well in this game. And you were in a very bad mood towards the end and you tied for winning or came in second place by a point. Something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, it was $1 short of winning on that one. It felt bad. Like every move I did felt bad. Bad. I was either punching somebody below the belt or I was getting punched below the belt or I can move a couple things here, but then I overextend myself and leave myself open to get punched below the belt. It kind of everything I did felt bad. It wasn't fun. My problem with this is that if you take 10 actions that you do, like of those 10 actions, nine of those are what would be considered area control type actions. They're producing units, they're moving units, fighting, making more factories to make more units. And you only actually get to invest about once every 10 actions or something like that. So for a game that's air quotes financial, I found that I was doing very little investment in the game. And most of what I was doing was what I would be doing in a risk type game, for example. So for you, um, and I forgot to bring this up before the podcast, but there's a variance that we had options to play. And we played apparently the bad way, which is the main way in the game. So there's an investor card that's circling around the board and whoever has the investor card gets to take an invest action when a certain thing triggers it. But what actually people recommend in the game is not having that card. And after any country takes an action, you can then invest in them. Yeah, I can certainly see that underlining that theme of investment better, because as it was, it, it really felt like a uh, game of risk with a weird alternate win condition pasted on. Right, because it's like you, we were playing with our hands behind our back when regards to investing because it was so f infrequent that you'd be able to do it. You would have to wait and try to really gamify out where it's going to be when you can invest and who you should invest in. I think it made it a little bit too much. So I really liked it. But what I thought was interesting about it is the two people, you and Kirk, one doesn't like investment games, but likes war games, which is Kirk. And then there's you who doesn't like war games, but likes investment games. And both of you were saying the things that you didn't like about the game was the thing that the other person thought was too much of. So you said there was not enough investment in the game. Kirk said there was too much investment in the game. So I don't know if that means that both of your guys' perception of the game was wrong or it, or what, but well, it was it was interesting sitting as kind of a neutral party. I, I think we were both highlighting the same thing, just coming at it from a different direction. I think we were highlighting the fact that what you do in the game and what you're judged on is two different things. Right. And I so I think once we play the variant, this definitely has one more play in it before it gets kicked out of or I'm going to make a decision on it. But with the new variant that you can actually just invest at any time. I think that'll make it a lot better and it'll actually make it seem more poignant and focused towards that point of what you're doing and who you are in the game being Swiss bankers. I, I will give it a whirl again, but I'm going to put a big red flag on the opportunity cost mound next to that one. Ah, uh, yeah, we'll have to talk. That's that's a topic for another episode, but I agree. <laughs> so I, I might not be with you. It's one of those things with replays, guys, where I find if I'm ambiguous replay it quick so you can make the decision quick because if you come to it too late and you've forgotten half the rules and you have that clunky first experience again it influences your opinion yeah so yeah. We'll, we'll have yeah, to that's see a good point 
I think we'll get it to the table sometime next Wednesday. It just will depend on whether or not Mark's going to run another table or if he'd want to play with us. And I think he you'll you'll see. I'll give my further impressions on it when I play it again. Um, what you what else did you guys plan Wednesday that I was not there, Mark? We got a chance to play Glass Road before you showed up, and uh, I'm going to talk more about this later in the episode because it's on topic with our main topic today. But that's an Uwe Rosenberg game released in the U.S. by alternatively Mayfair Z-Man. Super fun little resource conversion game and building game where you try to get up victory points and uh, plays out in about 45 minutes and love that game a lot. So I'm going to table that one for right now. Right. But there is one cool side note that we should make. What is the score? You had a three-way tie oh. in a four-player game for winning. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I was going to bring out the lovely uh, upgraded bits that you gave me for uh, my birthday here. And No, I'm a nice friend, but the tying was way more interesting. You yeah. had three players who tied with 18 and a half at uh, the very end of the game. Yeah, it was actually 17 and a half, 17 and a half, 17 and a half to 16 and a half. I don't think we decided anything there. Right. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, one tie, all tie rejoice in your shared victory. So there you go. So Craig, what have you been playing over in the UK? Well, it's completely off brand, but I have been playing lots of underwater cities primarily because it's hot, which sounds massively, uh, also <laughs> new, but, uh, my, lo- my logic was I'm going to hit this a lot. And if I don't like it, then I'll sell it whilst people want it but it's not being sold. Wow. Yep, it's everything I don't like about games, but strangely, it works. The, it's worker placement. All the interactions are oblique. You're working on your own board as opposed to a shared map. Yet somehow, the combination of card play and worker placement, and I can go into specifics of that, just it's a nice crunchy puzzle. And there's a kind of this building thing where you're building buildings, unsurprisingly, in your soggy suburbia, to produce various stuff that you'll need to produce more stuff in the next era, that you'll need to produce more stuff in the next era. So far, so Terraforming Mars. <laughs> but unlike Terraforming Mars, which I personally am not a fan of, so I'm sure you're going to lose some listeners for this one. I apologize about that. I'm with you on that one, actually. Oh, cool, cool. So you've already lost those listeners, so it's fine. Great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> with this one, the cards are in eras. So rather, the, I had the nightmare game Terraforming Mars for my first game, which probably gave me anchor bias, where you get all the end game cards early on, you buy them because you go, well, that's the only cards I, that are in my hand. I've got to buy them. I know no better. And everybody else is doing this fun, cool stuff. And you're saying, pass. And then 45 minutes into the game, you get to do a thing. That game, for me, would benefit from a similar structure to this, where the cards come out in phases. So you know the early game cards are going to be engine building cards primarily, rather than a big investment in end game cards. But like I say, this game's played over three eras. It's ostensibly 40 minutes per player. And of the free plays, they've all kind of ran that long. The kink is this, right? Worker placement, where every time I place a worker, I have to play a card from hand. If the card from hand matches the category of the worker placement spot I've taken, I get the benefit from the card as well. Oh, cool. So there's kind of this planning puzzle of, okay, I want to do this high value action on the board, but I haven't got anything of that color. So I need to defer that action until I pick up, you know, I draw a card of that color oh no, Jake just took the spot because it's a good spot. There's a nice internal tension there. And that whole building on itself thing, so I should probably describe the the context, right? The context is, it's the future, there's been global warming, and instead of a water world scenario where we're all living on rafts, it's actually a thousand leagues under the sea job where we're all living in big domes, right, under the water. And we're trying to expand this infrastructure to be able to hold more population. Oh, wow. uh, to, so to do that over the course of 40 minutes per player, 
we um, build extra domes. We build tunnels between the domes. We build desalination plants, kelp farms, and science labs to produce science because last time I checked, science is little cardboard tokens. And we use these things to build a diverse city that at the end we'll score points on. There's some classic Euro tropes in there, like mission cards that you can compete for, end game recipes that you can score points off, universal scoring that you get for structuring your city appropriately. Like I said in the preamble, all stuff that normally my blood's running cold, but there's something compelling about the planning puzzle, something compelling about the fact that you start from nothing. So that first era, if you don't get your production right and you don't get your share of the resources, you can score a third of what other people score. It's very, very brutal. But everybody we've we've put in front of it has really enjoyed it. Wow, we're going to have to get this, Mark. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> well, Craig's already been behind the scenes telling me, dude, you really need to get this. You really need to get this game. And yeah, I agree completely. It sounds like there's a high degree of interactivity in it too, doesn't it? As far as ish, it's worker placement type interactivity. So you've got the block in there. So it's all oblique. You've got the block in there. You compete for recipes on the board, for want of a better term, end game scoring amplifiers. And there's only six available. And if you pick one up, no one else is getting it. So all the interactions are bleak. I like it despite the fact the interactivity is just kind of standard feast for Odin level, sure. bouncing off each other kind of stuff. And I think it's just a, a really good example of something like that done well. I can honestly say I went in with uh, the intent of selling the thing. It's hot. I want to try it. My wife might like it. And if we don't like it, I'll move it on. I've done a full 180 on it. So, you know, if that's not a testament, I don't know what is. And what player counts are you playing that at? So far, we've only played it at four because you know what it's like when you get a brand new game and it's, re- it's uh, reasonably expensive. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a card game. It's in the UK, it's 55 pounds or circa, I'd imagine that's probably 60, $70 in your neck of the woods. Yeah, that's about right. Sure. So when you get a new game, everybody wants to try it, right? I'm looking forward to trying it two player because the reverse of the board is specifically for two player. Oh, that's great. So it should scale okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to get that one, Mark. You do it first. I am buying too many games right now. <laughs> <laughs> to my wife that's listening, oh, I think we might have to pass on that one. That sounds oh, great, no. but. <laughs> <laughs> it's already in the Amazon cart. Got it. And the other side of it is that I'm a big fan of Vladimir Sushi's game. Um, I, I like Pulsar 2849 quite a bit. Not the most groundbreaking game in the world, but something about it is it just it, it flows really easy and it's just kind of a fun experience every time we played it. You put it better than me there, Mark. That's the thing about this. It's enough doesn't feel groundbreaking. It very much feels derivative of other things in some ways, but it flows so smoothly. Yeah. And that may be Vladimir's little magic trick that he does. Is he just somehow finds a way to polish off the edges so that it's just an enjoyable experience. I should really give you a mogul scale for the... Un- for oh, the please do. Please forgive me. This one's going to be the one that I suspect is pending review when the experts themselves play it. I would say rules complexity is circa free. Maybe, yeah, about free. There's lots of fringe cases and the manual does suffer a lot from repeatitis. And by that, I mean, there's universal rules that are repeated in every paragraph. So although the rules could arguably be a two and a half, the way they're presented isn't great. Um, the strategic depth is probably probably a C. Right in the wheelhouse. Perfect. All right. That was Underwater Cities by Vladimir Suchi and Rio Grande Games. Sounds great. I get a chance to play something that we talked about back in episode four, our Oinkasode. And at that time, I did not own a copy of Kobayakawa by Oink Games, designed by Jun Sasaki. Recently, when I was buying some other Oink games, I was able to pick up a copy of the 2019 reprint of Oink's Kobayakawa. 
I didn't know that I was buying a different game than Jake already owned. because Jake owned an earlier publishing of it. The way the game works is it's basically a poker style betting game where you get a card and your goal is to have the highest value at the end of the round. But there's a card out in the middle that is shared, but shared air quotes and that whoever has the lowest card actually gets to add that to their low card. Cards are like two through 15. If If you have a 11 and you're the low card, you might actually get to add that 8 to it. And now suddenly your 19 beats the guy who had the 15. The two actions that you can do is you can either draw and replace your card with one other card, or you can replace that Kobiakawa card. So suddenly the world can change on you after you get a chance to pick something. Then after that, there's a round of betting. And the round of betting is there's a couple of air quotes, big blind force bets. The other people have to put in. You do a bunch of rounds of betting, and then finally you reveal, and whoever has the highest value gets it. Now, what's weird about this is that the rules were miswritten in the new version that didn't allow any kind of check in there. So if the first person raised it up to your level, and it came around to you and you were after them, you either had to raise it again or you had to drop out. There was no just, I'm good, let's reveal. Right, (laughs) and I think that might have been from the fact that a round, like the term the round wasn't established. So I don't know if it starts a new round until it goes back to the person that raised it. So then that betting round would have been over. This also goes to the point of why I found Teach You so hard to explain because everybody knows how to bet in poker, but you can't really write that down and read it in an easy way. No, um, I think no. I think they just had a tough time verbalizing how an actual check thing goes through. What's also weird is you were telling me about this and I was like, no, it doesn't. There is no way to bet. It's either one or nothing. And you said no. <laughs> and I said, you're crazy, Mark. I'm literally looking at the rules right now. I don't know what the heck happened to yours. And then I come over on Wednesday and I look at it and it was completely different. So I guess they changed the rules for this edition. Yeah. So to wrap it up, what we ultimately ended up doing is we ended up house ruling it to be basically poker betting rules on that one where you could raise match or just pass, you know, and not drop out. Bold, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, that fixed the game and made it a lot of fun to play. But yeah, I'm curious what the correct way of playing that is, because the rules are not uh, leading me down that path. Oh, both sets of rules online if people want the option of playing with the old rules. They I are, think yeah. So. I think they're on they're on BGG, right? Yellow published it also, and the yellow version is online. And I think the original oink printing and the yellow rules are the same. That's good. That's good. Got it. I was actually lucky enough to go to New York this weekend to visit my cousins who live in Manhattan. And so we went to a whole bunch of coffee shops in Brooklyn's as hipsters do, and we played a whole bunch of board games there. So we played Tiny Epic Galaxies by Scott Alms and Gameland Games in three different coffee shops over the weekend, and I actually had a pretty good time with this game. Mark, have you played this game? Yes, I have a copy of it. It's been a minute since I've played it. I do enjoy it and have played it before, but uh, it, it's been a minute since I've played it. So why don't you refresh us a little bit on it? Yes, yeah, same here, same here. So it's just a, it's it's a dice placement or it's a dice rolling action selection game. So what you're doing is you're different space empires with little ships and you're going to a row of cards that you can either land on and take the power, or you can actually try to colonize them and add them to your tableau functionally. And there's a bunch of different resources. Every die face is the same, but there's six different actions. So they're equally distributed, and you can roll them, and then you take certain actions with it. And it's pretty bog standard, but I remember disliking a lot of the Tiny Epic games. I actually kickstarted the tiny epic western game and pretty promptly got rid of it because i didn't like it and that kind of caused a stain on all the other ones for me but i played this one again and it was just really fun it's it's nothing crazy it's over quick um you're rolling dice there's a decent amount of downtime in between turns but you can follow if you have the right resources so 
a good little game. I think we should play it again. It was it, it felt like a fairly large box experience in a small box. So it did the tiny epic moniker correctly. Yeah, I'd agree. I liked it quite a bit and I would be happy to play that one again. Plus, the playtime is a, a, an easy one to fit in anytime you want to. Right. Yeah. So it was fun. So we got a bunch of people looking at us while we were playing games in coffee shops and they were confused. (laughs) Fun. Craig, you have one on your list that I have to admit I know nothing about. Sure. So we decided to dig an old game out of the collection uh, to play with some friends. And it's by Pearl Games, the same guys who did Deus, which I hope made it across the pond. It's called The Bloody Inn. And it's uh, similar to Jake's game. It's the thing you could play in a coffee shop. And it doesn't take up too much table space. The setting is that we are French hoteliers trying to um, make money in a little visited part of France. And we can't charge much for the hotel because it's a bit of a rundown part of town or part of the country. So what do you do? You murder your guests. And when you murder your guests, you can take all their money. So over the course of almost a Rosenberg style clock where you go through the deck two times. So that's 45 minutes. We um, try to make as much money as possible. And of course, murdering your guests is one of the ways you can do it. There's other ways you can make money too. It's um, a card game where functionally, I'm trying to, work, trying to describe a game that plays like it. When you want to take an action, you have to discard cards from hand. Oh, so like Race for the Galaxy. Yeah, you've got, yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. Perfect. So if I want to take a two-point action, I've got to discard two cards. If I want to take a three-point action, I've got to discard three cards. You can kind of get the theme here. So the more profitable guests to uh, make disappear, they might be free card guests that you need to discard free accomplices to uh, get rid of. Or maybe uh-huh. you've got a powerful accomplice that um, you can play into your tableau permanently to give you a perpetual benefit. You'll have to discard free cards to build him as a permanent accomplice type feature. It's a really clever multi-use card game in so much as it's truly the definition of multi-use, right? The cards, if they're face up in front of you, they're buildings. If they're in your hand, they're accomplices. If they're face down on the board, but not underneath another card, they're a corpse. If you tuck them underneath a building, and because we're honourable murderers, the only way we can take their money is if we bury them, (laughs) then they're buried corpses. The other thing that this game has is it has um, a suit matching kind of feature where if you have cards of the right suits, you don't have to spend them and discard them to discard pile to do a thing. You know, like, uh, for instance, priests are good at burying people, right? So you just show that you have that card and therefore you get to maintain your hand size. The flip side of that is you actually pay money at the end of each round to keep all those accomplices on the hock. So there's this balancing of I want to make money. I want to keep these cards and use them whilst I can because it's more efficient. But when they cease being of any use, maybe I want to use them for something they don't like doing so they'll run away. It's a fair degree of interaction in so much as you want to try and snipe people, be it hire them or kill them, out of other people's rooms so they don't get money for people staying there and bury bodies underneath other people's buildings so they run out of space because there's this kind of push your luck thing. The police also visit the hotel. And if at the end of any given round you've got unburied corpses, there's a steep financial penalty for doing that. <laughs> got redheaded. Indeed, caught red-handed and you'll lose money. There's, it's got its awesome catch-up mechanic as well, but that's, that's by the by. I mean, that's in the, that's in the weed stuff. As a round product, it's actually, I think it's a really superb card game. A lot of it's rose-tinted spectacles there. It was one of the first card games like that myself and my wife bought when we got into the hobby. Well, deeper into the hobby, shall we say. So I guess the thing is, revisiting it this time, as much as I enjoyed it, it did make me realise that what I considered deep back then and of infinite depths maybe isn't the same now. This is very much a kind of a, a C on the mogul scale. It's not an E. Got it. You know, it's... It, you. 
you know, it's good in a rotation. If you hammer it too much, I think you'll uh, wear the canvas off it. Right. And I remember seeing the pictures of this game and it was the, a really striking, like kind of red, dark art on the front. Is that the case? Am I thinking of the right game? You're thinking of the right game. And that theme is dripping throughout. The cards carry that art all the way through. It's proper melancholy. Oh, that's awesome. But it's just the fact it marries to the mechanics so well as, as well, Jake, right? It's the every action feels rich and that tension you get when you have uh, got the police there and there's one left and you go, okay, I've got two corpses and I can either, I can't hire that policeman, but maybe I can kill him. And if I kill him, I've got another corpse, which is fine. That's okay now. But what about next round? Will there be more, more police, police coming out of the deck? just keep on piling them oh, up. Oh, <laughs> no. Murder spiral. I mean, a game that has a murder spiral as a, as a pattern for me is quality. That's awesome. I'm adding it to the wish list. That's great. Again, I should give you guys your mogul scale for the bloody inn. I would say if uh, Underwater Cities is a 3C, uh, using my implementation, this is probably a 2B. Cool. It's kind of a filler weight length too, correct? You can play a short version of the game where you remove cards from the deck, but in all honesty, it's just not worth playing because some of those engine cards that you might pay to build out, they're not going to pay out and it just takes the richness out of the game. Sure. Perfect. Bloody in. By Nicholas Robert and Robert, probably French, Pearl Games. So I have been playing a new gaming related thing. I hesitate to call it a game, but I recently got a awesome gaming related peripheral. I was able to get a Glowforge recently, which is a uh, 40 watt CO2 laser that's made from a company that's kind of the Apple computing of laser cutters. There's some very Chinese EM ones that you can buy that will do the job with a lot of tweaking and hacking. This one's a great experience right out of the box and is lots of polish to it. And man, I've been having a fun time with that so far. No, no, I can totally see how that's exciting. I've recently got into 3D printing and this seems to be very, very similar. A friend of mine in the UK used to run one of those Chinese lasers, and he said functionally buying a Glowforge that allowed him to sleep at night because he wasn't worried about the thing burning his house down. (laughs) And the funny part is that was my plan to get one of the Chinese ones, but I had the same concerns where I'm like, well, these things do burn things, (laughs) and the wiring on those Chinese ones is real sketchy, and I would really have something go wrong, like if the water pump failed and... Now suddenly the laser overheated and broke. Now the house is burned down. I didn't want to deal with that. So ultimately I did go with the Glowforge on that. And thus far, what I've done with it is my one of my first projects was just to start cutting some stuff and made some funky little gaming moguls challenge hexes, which we posted on our Instagram account. That was a fun little project. It's an 18xx coin that you keep in your pocket. And, uh, you know, if you're not carrying yours when challenged, then you get to buy beverages for the person challenging you. The next project I did has got a little more teeth to it. I designed a box for my print and play copy of Glory to Rome, uh, which I put Roman columns on and made a little atrium in the box. So it was kind of a multi-layered 3D box. And uh, my most recent project is I printed an insert for the full version of Leaving Earth, along with all the separate expansion modules in there so I could get them all in one box. (sighs) It's really fun. (laughs) I saw that stuff. Right. it's, It's beautiful. So what's funny is actually this has taken over pretty much our entire conversations about board games. Normally we talk, we talk about the podcast, we talk about other stuff. It seems like all we talk about now is all the cool things I want you to make me. Like (laughs) I have so many ideas for you and you had a 3D printer before and you were very nice about telling me that if you want me to make anything, feel free. But that took long and it was expensive and sometimes it wouldn't print right and all this stuff. From my understanding, laser printers are fast, right? Maybe 20 minutes to print off something of decent size. It's directly variable on what level of graphics you have on there. If you're literally just cutting shapes, like for an insert, it's pretty fast. Like it'll cut out 
a complete sheet in 12 minutes or something like that. It's it's pretty quick. If you start putting like, you know, large high resolution graphics on there, that can slow down quite a bit. So like the, the panel that did the outside of my Glory to Rome box, which is festooned with high resolution Roman columns around the outside, that one took, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to print, which is still orders of magnitude faster than 3D printing something like that. Right now, my mouth is agog. I'm just shocked. An hour 20 would barely get me an insert for no it wouldn't get me an insert it just wouldn't get me that high i was definitely sitting here resolute thinking that i am not interested in another tool wow when you can buy that with a lower material cost as well right because how much is a sheet of wood you know it really depends on how and where you buy it i'm founding there's there's a massive variability and even something as simple as like a 12 by 20 sheet of mdf if you buy it from glowforge it's like 12 dollars a sheet if you buy it from I just found a guy on Etsy that was selling 22 sheets for $50. So, you know, um, you you can certainly buy it for a much, much lower price if you shop around a little bit. So, you know, a dollar or two a sheet if you buy smartly. Yeah, that's when you look at the vertical height you can get out of an insert with a big sheet of MDF. It's how much plastic you use to get decent height for inserts. Wowzers, that's cheaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the Leaving Earth insert was six full sheets of MDF. So it was a pretty, you know, it's a pretty involved insert. There's a, there's probably, gal, I don't know, 12 to 15 different pieces inside of there, some of which are pretty complex. So it was six sheets of MDF and literally it was finishing up each sheet as fast as I could prepare the next sheet for printing because you have to put some masking on it. So it's one of those that I cut the entire insert in under an hour. And you say there's, there's very little bike shed in you just, you just put it out and it, and it goes, you call it the Apple product. As I found with my um, 3D printer, I spent literally months tuning it and getting it right. And don't get me wrong, it was doing functional prints pretty quick, but to get the prints looking real sweet takes a lot of investment in time. Yeah, no, it literally first time out of the box just went. The gotcha with with a laser cutter is it's burning things. And so it does produce smoke and there is a smell to it. So you do need to be able to vent that externally pretty well. And even then, part that you pull out of there is going to smell a little bit like a campfire. So if you immediately take that from the cutter and bring it out to your living room, you're going to have your wife saying, what's on fire? <laughs> nice, nice. Although in all fairness, my, my wife absolutely loves the smell of burnt wood. So uh, I'm sure she'd love that. There it is. You, you, you got a good Christmas present locked up for get her a Glowforge. It's for her, honest. Right. It's of course for her. There's not, and it does seem interesting because whenever we talk about the things you could 3D print, there was a lot of cool stuff. But with the laser cutter in this hobby, it seems like that could make so many different things. We've talked about making, aside from inserts, which we all know about, you could make tokens for things. You could make new tiles. You could make everything. It just seems so universal to have a laser cutter to make stuff for this hobby. I'll say now, right? My um, friend, inverted commas, I say that. I hope he doesn't mind. Jordan Draper. Uh, he does a lot of his prototyping using laser cutters. I mean, he's he's a massive maker and, you know, he does craft work with paper, 3D printing, laser cutters. And the thing he seems to use the most from what I've seen of his prototypes is the, is the, is the laser cutter because time to reward seems to be way better than 3D printing. You know, to print a full insert for any game, it would take several days in order to get through all of that. With a 3D printer. With a 3D printer, correct. Well, it depends, man. You need to have a look at my uh, Deep Sea Adventure 3D printed insert, although it's not my design. I keep throwing you guys pictures of it, yet I'm yet to see it in your board games. There you go. Well, and Deep Sea Adventure is pretty small, so yeah, that one would go a lot quicker. So that was your Glowforge. Keep an eye out for our Instagram page, and maybe Mark will set up an Etsy account. Maybe we'll just pivot this. This is a laser cutting podcast now. <laughs> That's For a sure. joke, by the way. We don't. We won't do that. <laughs>
we do have a main topic today that we would like to discuss. That was one of the things that we keep coming back to is that we find that there's a lot of games that we'll say they punch above their weight, right? You know, they're, they have a lot of strategic depth and a lot of interesting decisions to make. Yet the rule teach is pretty quick or pretty easy to explain given the level of strategic complexity. So if you look at the mogul scale where if you put the rules complexity on the Y axis and the strategic complexity on the X axis, this would be low in rules complexity, high in strategic complexity. So that'd be the lower right quadrant of the mogul scale. What we did is Jake, Craig, and I went through and made a list of three games that we picked a small, a medium, and a large game that fit that category where the strategic complexity outweighs the amount of rules complexity in the game. And we'd like to take a few minutes and tell you about a few of those. So with no further ado, Jake, let's do our small ones first. Why don't you go ahead and kick it off? Well, I think mine is actually not very small. In gameplay, it is. In game design, it is very small. But This box is full of components, and it's a pretty large box. I'm talking about The Climbers by Holger Lons and published by Chili Spiel, or more recently, Simply Complex Games, which is a line underneath Capstone Games. And so what you're doing in The Climbers is it's one of the most visually striking games I've ever seen. There's a bunch of pastel-colored blocks, and each side has a different color on it. And what you're doing to start the game is you're going to build this little pastel mountain, And then on your turn, you're going to climb up the mountain kind of as high as you can with some rules following it. But all you do on your turn is you grab a tile from anywhere as long as no one's standing on it, and you move one of those blocks and put it somewhere else. And then you climb up as much as you want. It is such an interesting decision space and seeing the game open up after a very, very light rules. And what's also cool is it comes with little ladders. How can you not like a game that comes with little ladders? It's just fun to have all the components and everything come together in a really nice package that's completely deep without seemingly so. Like, I think this would be a game I'd pull out instead of Jenga. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's this This is a painful brain burner for something that really is just a, hey, set up this pile of blocks, you move a block, you make a guy move up. That's pretty much the rules. Right, and then you can make uh, alliances with people because there's certain colors that everybody can stand on so you may move something and say hey tyler why don't you move the next one i'll make it so you can climb up to this one why don't we just keep on going together and maybe he'll cut you off maybe he won't it's neat the amount of deep strategic complexity and opening up the decision space is huge out of such a simple set of mechanisms i think one of the features i really like about it actually is you can involve the player who's not played it before in the setup as the setup is it's all randomly put together right so if you don't know the rules and you say put these things together then you get a real random setup and they get some ownership of the game moving forwards. Right. Yeah, we always do that, too. We always look away while they're doing it. But it's it's a fun game. They tried to make a Kickstarter for it to make a bigger edition and a different colored edition. And I think they pulled the plugs on that. But I think it's still commercially available. And it's one of the best games that I like to play at a game store. People will come over and ask you what game it is. It has a great table presence and it's just fun to kind of stand up and walk around and climb up a mountain. And I like the fact there's not a tip over factor like Jenga where you get that big crash of the tiles on the table. Yeah. Well, there is sometimes if you play with people or have had one too many beers. It just depends. We have had to call the game after a tip over effect once or twice. So anywho, that's the climbers. That's a game I need to borrow from you. I, I think my family would enjoy that one a lot. Anytime. I'd lend you my copy, but the shipping might be a bit rough. (laughs) (laughs) Might be a little bit rough. Why don't you get it from me? Jake, what would you say the mogul scale rating on the climbers would be? I think I'd probably give it a 1C. 
or maybe a 1B plus. It just depends on how deep you're willing to get into it. It definitely is one of those games where you have to think about making partnerships and, well, what's he going to do? Why is he going to do that or she to do that so that if they do that on their turn, then I can do this. You really have to think about why certain actions may exist and really internalize those. Because if you want to, what you can do on turn is just grab a block and climb up a step. But you really have to think about the game deeply to get out of it the depth of complexity that exists in it, I think. What's your light game, Mark? My light game is a game that is easily... It's on the short list of most painful games that I own. That Every time it comes out, whoever I'm playing it with looks at it, winces, and just says, Oh, oh, I hate this game. I love it. I hate it. I love it. Oh, it's such a good game. Oh, it hurts so bad. That game is the 2013 release by Kota Nakayama and Deepwater Games. It's Hanami Koji, also known as uh, Jisha Academy. They just did a Kickstarter where they rethemed it, but left it the same game. Hanami Koji is a game about trying to gain the favor of geishas, which are artistic entertainers. They're not ladies of the night. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the majority of those to favor you. And you do that through an I split you choose mechanism where there's four different actions you can take and you only get to do each of those actions one time. So one of the actions is, I think, like I put out three cards and you pick two of them and then I get the other one. Another one is where I will put out four cards and split them into two piles and you get to take one of the piles. Then I get the other one. And another one is where I can just bury a card. And another one is one where I can just play a card down directly. The idea is that you're trying to get the highest score behind the, the majority score around each geisha. And if you get the majorities of the geisha, you end up winning. Or alternatively, if you're above a certain point total on your side of things. And that I split you choose mechanism is so painful because you know that you could completely screw it up and lose the game just if you give the guy something he's actually secretly hoping to get. So it's an agonizing decision for such a short game. Have either of you had a chance to play this? Craig, I'll let you go first. No, I had a chance to play it. Um, it's a Design-wise, it's a really strong title. I struggled with it because we already had a couple of two-player um, adversarial card games that have hit this button, for want of a better term, Lost Cities and Battle Line. So it was really hard for me to get out of that space of I just play the thing I already know. But the, the times I played at Hanakamoji, I thought it was a really strong, interesting title. Just unfortunately, I didn't have the room in my heart to let it in. Yeah, I've played it once and I liked it a lot. It was interesting. Um, no, I think I've actually played it twice. I played it with you and I remember you teaching it to me and you had prefaced this. I think it was at Clopcon with this is such a mean game. You're going to feel just like you had the worst time in it. And I've been watching people play it all weekend where they're just agonizing over the decisions. And you taught me and it was kind of like that one of those 18xx games where you just do well, <laughs> like no one's in your way. And all <laughs> my decisions were made and I was like, oh, that's great. And then I won and it was it was no big deal. It was just, it was very interesting. All, all of my decisions were, I wouldn't say rote, but things went my way in that game and it worked out well. I really liked it. I'd like to play it again. Bring it sometime. Absolutely. That's a, it's a great little game and it's a extremely inexpensive too. I mean, it's a sub $15 game in the US. And to wrap it up, I would give Hanami Koji a 1C on the mogul scale. It's pretty quick to understand, about a five minute rule teach and uh, the... They're painful, but not necessarily difficult decisions. So still deep, but not 4D chess deep. So 1C on the mogul scale for Hanami Koji. I do have a question for you guys. Do, yeah. you, do you struggle getting it to the table because it's two players? Because I find down at game night, if I'm taking a two-player game, then that's going to struggle to get uh, service. That is not a game I would probably bring to a game night for exactly that reason. 
that's more game on just like if I, you know, a friend is over and we're just sitting around having a beer and just relaxing or maybe a case where everybody else in the game night is left earlier, but Jake and I are ready to play of just couple more little things or something like that. Yes, it doesn't have the same broad appeal because it's two players only, but because of the fact it's, you know, it's only a 10 minute play, it's easier to get out and fit into some places that maybe wouldn't have game playing opportunities otherwise. Yeah, we have a tough time playing two player games in our group, so... That leads probably into my small box title then that I would argue is strictly superior because it goes up to four players. Let's hear it. It's also car driven. It uh, was released in 2015, designed by Dan Cesar. It's Arboretum. So there's been a couple, it's so good, there's been two printings. You can either get the Z-Man first printing if you're lucky enough to be able to find a copy of that in its muted tones, or you can pick up the slightly more colourful Renegade Games printing of it. It's a card game that supports two to four players, plays in about 45 minutes. And I believe you've played it, Jake, so we can chat about we this can. shortly. Mm. Um, you are Victorian, I'm going to say Victorian because it makes me feel good, tree gardeners trying to make an arboretum, a tree garden, in the most visually striking way possible. The only way you can represent the visually strikingness of the trees is by assigning them numbers, of course, because that works with cards. There'll be a number of uh, suits in the game, depending on the number of players, and you are trying to lay down a grid, functionally, of trees in ascending numerical order. There's bonuses for the trees matching in type, and there's bonuses for getting runs of a given tree. Uh, You can skip a number, but obviously if you skip a number, then you're going to be unable to put the thing in later because once trees are planted, you're not lifting them up. That's what you're doing. That's how you score. But the tension is entirely driven from the fact that you have to draw two cards a turn and play two cards, but one of the cards is into your tableau, the other is into a discard pile. Now, here's the kink. When you draw, you can draw either blind from the deck or from other people's discard piles, right? So that's one point of tension. The other point of tension is that at the end of the game, when we've run out of cards in the deck, the cards that are left in my hand actually enable scoring. So if I don't have enough points of cards of a given suit in my hand, I can't score that type of tree in my my, um, arboretum. And here's the thing as well. If Jake's going for dogwood and I'm going for dogwood, only one of us is scoring dogwood. So there's some lovely bluffing interaction where I might be dumping cards into my discard pile that I secretly want to pick up later because I'm trying to get, you know, functionally virtually expand the size of my hand. There's watching players to see what they're picking up, to see what they're trying to score. There's trying to infer people's objectives from how their tableau's growing. I think for a game where every turn all you're doing is drawing two cards and playing two cards, quality of decision on this is off the scale. Well, I came locked and loaded to disagree with you and come in really aggressively because I I agree. I think the art is beautiful in the game. I think that the component quality is wonderful. I like the theme. Anna and I are big fans of nature. We actually got engaged in an arboretum in Minnesota. So this was great. I really wanted to like this. But I got a rule wrong, apparently, and it undoes every single thing. All of my complaints about it are no longer complaints. So I didn't know that you could draw from the discard pile. We just had one discard pile. So that resulted in my two main complaints about the game. A, it was too fast. Sure. And then B, you can just throw away cards and then they're gone. So it's all about maintaining your hands. All you're doing is collecting cards to collect cards. Oh, I feel like an idiot. And I traded this away because I... Because it, it luckily it's still com- still commercially available. I oh hope you didn't trade away the Z-Man oh copy because that's the prettier one. I didn't, one, in my I opinion, didn't but... trade away a Z-Man one. Oh, I'm such a 
Cool. Oh, this is well, this better be aired because this is this is my outing. <laughs> and I gave it four or five tries. I read the rule book a bunch. Apparently, I missed it. Wow, it's it's huge. This is hilarious because I have heard so many good things about how good this game is, and that it's really you know nice and tense and thinky. And I keep looking at it, thinking, man, this is a game that I really need to get, and I think this would be go great in my travel game case and. Just everything great about it. But man, Jake hated it and he traded it away. I did not hate it. I so it it still <laughs> delivered exactly what I wanted, what what, the, what was poised to do. It still had tension. It still made all of your decisions really tight. And it was really simple rules with a very interesting end scoring rule. So that was great. But with the game being so fast and everyone always plinking two cards off the top, it just felt wrong. It felt like it did that. But Maybe we weren't appreciating it enough or something. And I gave it a lot of plays. I think I played this game like six or seven times just because I knew there'd be something in there and I just should have reread the rules a couple more times. Spreading those uh, cards around multiple discard piles lets you, although you have to draw from the top of the discard pile down, you can wait a turn and then pick go two cards deep in somebody else's discard pile to get that one card you want. Right. So it does add a whole different dimension to the game. Right. Yeah, because it, it, it extended. And that was my main complaint is it went too fast and there's no way to do it. And we'd look towards mm. about right, right towards the end. We'd say, really, is this the end? I just I haven't really made a path. So, yeah, that I think I'm gonna have to rebuy this game. This might be the first time I'm doing it where I buy a game I got rid of. Oh, no. Well, and I'm happy because that just uh, cleared the path for me to add that to my collection. <sighs> I'm an idiot. Well, if you do get it, get the big version. Ooh, don't get, no, don't get the big version. Don't get the big version, Everything. in my opinion. The, the the big version has got shiny foil art, and you'd think that sounds really awesome, but strangely, I think the art looks better in the oh, normal really? flat version. Okay, interesting. Matter of taste, right? It's only it's only visual presentation, and the box is really nice. But as evidenced by the preamble in the show, Mark can cut his own boxes, yeah, so he doesn't, he doesn't need, need to pay boxes. for that. Okay, well, yeah, get <laughs> right the small on. one. I I might have to get it too. Ugh, I'm such a fool. Sure. All right, so Craig, where would you rank that on the mogul <laughs> scale? Sure. So the rules are one and the and the depth is probably D um, or E. No, let's say D. I think it's a one D. The rules are real simple. You can partake in it and do badly, but still be doing the activity without distorting it for others too much. But as you play it more and more and more, it'll expose more and more kind of depth and dimensions. Okay, so that's our small game choices. The Climbers, Hanami Koji, and Arboretum. So our medium game choices, Jake, why don't you lead us off here? What do you got for your medium choice? All right. Mine's a game that's almost as old as me. It is Stevenson's Rocket by Dr. Reiner Knizia and Grail Games more recently. It was just recently kickstarted and it has a beautiful, you know, tool designed art. This game was designed or originally published in 1999. I was designed and published in 1993. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty close. So what you're doing in Stevenson's Rocket is you are different investors. We've talked about it in the podcast again, but you're different investors speculating on, I believe, eight or nine different train companies in Craig's neck of the woods. So on your turn, all you're doing is two different actions, and they're really simple actions. You're either extending a train line, you can put down some stations, or you can invest in some industries. And all those actions are really, really, really simple, but there's some really interesting ways that they can resolve to result in really deep gameplay. If the trains ever run into each other or run into a different line, think of Snake. Instead of eating the person whose line you ran into, the person that ran into the other person's line is the one who dies, and they get merged into the other company. And so you can game this and really try to figure it out, and depending on where you move in certain points, you'll give different point scoring opportunities, but 
I've played it two times now, and I keep on thinking about how deep the strategy is and how much I need to get it repeat plays into it with the same group, just so we can really pry out all they have to offer here. Have you guys played Stevenson's Rocket? I guess it's probably not a surprise that I have. Um, <laughs> I picked up the Grail Games printing too. It's, uh, it's a beautiful printing. I think Eno Tool's done great work on it. I sound quite controversial here. I wish uh, Asia, the new Age of Steam drawing looked a bit more like it, but there you go. I think that my first game of this was full of these kind of, why would you do that? Oh, 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 oh. type moments. Right. It's, it was full of that. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Knizia's work. So I was interested to see what he'd do with a train game. And my fear was that it would, I guess, not carry the theme. But strangely, this one does. I do still feel like I'm building transport networks, even though you're likening it to Snake. For me, I'm seeing the mergers. You know, and um, that's really well represented with the industries you invest in in the various cities and how you have to spend shares to be able to carry the vote for various activities. So, you know, you propose you want to do a thing with a company and then someone can veto it. All those things are super rich. I really enjoy the title. Completely agree. And it's it's just such a great production. You can't understate that enough. Mark, you've played this one with me, correct? No, I, I have not. Oh, really? <laughs> I have not played oh, this so one Oh, so I'm yet. interested for you to play this with me because you have said that you don't like other Kinesia titles, notably Tigris and Euphrates, correct? Yeah, let me let me couch a little bit of that. Other Kinesia titles, specifically Tigris and Euphrates. Specifically, yeah. You you like other ones, Twins, I do, for yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fan of Reiner Kinesia. I am not a fan of Tigris and Euphrates. And Craig, there's my, uh, you know, torque everybody off opinion for the day because I know that one is well-loved. I appreciate and love the accomplishment of it. To me, that game is just dry as dirt. Oh, man, that game is dry. So I'm not a fan of that, and I think my appreciation of Stevenson's Rocket is going to be directly tied to how similar I feel it is to Tigris and Euphrates. Right. I have yet to play Tigris and Euphrates, but at least from an outside observer, I would think that Stevenson's Rocket would be a little more approachable for you, just in the same reasons that Craig said. It's very thematic. I love the merger definition as well. And you can really bully people if you own a bunch of shares of a company, or if you're a minority shareholder, you can just bully people out of shares because you can keep on making them spend shares to do things. And it's, it's, it's great. There's, there's a lot of interesting mechanisms in that, but exactly as Craig said, in your first play, you're going to be like, oh, this is really simple. Why would you ever want to get a passenger? And then halfway through the game, you're like, oh, well, that's why it's going to happen anyways. Might as well benefit from it. And then you can set yourself up for other turns. It's just. I, I really think I haven't even scratched the surface on this game in my two plays, and I need to play it more. Sounds awesome. That is Stevenson's Rocket by Dr. Reiner Knizia, Grail Games. And you would rate this one a what on the mogul scale? 2D. Would you agree with that there, Craig? Yep, I'd say that's good. I'd say that's about where I'd place it. It now makes me think that I probably overweighted Arboretum, but let's not... You know, I can't be as familiar with the mogul scales and the moguls themselves, so we'll forgive it, I'm right. sure. We'll, we'll put all the asterisks by yours. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> uh, third party. We, we hired a contractor for this. All right, Mark, what's your number two? Perfect. My number two is a game that I alluded to in the games we played this week. It's the 2013 Uwe Rosenberg game Glass Road, published domestically here by Mayfair and or Z-Man Games. Glass Road is a game set in Bavaria where you are trying to be a glass manufacturer and you're trying to create bricks and glass and make buildings and use the bricks and glass to build those buildings. It's a really short game playing in about 45 minutes. You only play four rounds. In each of those four rounds, you pick five cards. You play three of them. And if somebody plays a card that you have in your hand, you get to do that action 
and they only kind of get to do half an action. So it's it's about predicting who's going to play what and gaming out when you play your card to do that. You buy your buildings with that and produce resources. The neat part about this game is there's this kind of double clock mechanism that when you produce stuff, it goes up on the little clock. And when you use it up, it goes down on the clock. But it's like the hands are spring loaded, that if there's ever an open space, it ticks to the right, meaning that it uses up some of the resources that you have and creates others, meaning glass or brick. I'm led to believe it's a little game that was kind of developed alongside Aura and Labora, which has a similar mechanism, and was released as a smaller game. And man, I've played that three times in the past two weeks and absolutely love this game. Yeah, I was sadly not able to be included on it. Um, I've played this game once, um, played Glass Road once. Um, Actually, I believe at your house with my Uncle Kirk. It's really fast, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 45 minutes if there's a teach and you're kind of mumbling about about it. If you really got after it, you could probably play this in 30 minutes. You ever played this one, Craig? I have. I have. It's actually uh, one I played with my wife almost exclusively. I I think the action selection side of it is really strong. I'm not particularly warmed to what you're doing. Weirdly, the way it scores and building your tableau isn't the thing I think of when I think of this game. I think of the the wheel. I think the wheel's super clever because, oh no, I've made some glass, whether I want it or not. I actually wanted bricks and sand. Darn it, those those glass-obsessed glass blowers, they've eaten all my materials. That <laughs> Managing that's super cool. And the like you say, that whole bluff counterplay thing of, okay, I think they're going to want this and I'll have a little bit of that and I, I'm hoping they won't do this. That tension is really, really nice. Yeah, and I think this was a game that was out of print for a number of years, too, and only recently last year came back in print, at least here in the U.S., so there was a while that it was not available, and now it's pretty commonly available again and would highly recommend anybody looking for a easy-to-teach but good decision-based game that can be played in half hour, 45 minutes should absolutely look into this one. That's Glass Road by Uwe Rosenberg. Go on, then. you got to do it. you got to do it. You do it for every one of your games. What's I got the story? It. You know, I asked my kids this one after they had played it, because actually my son, William, said, Dad, what would you put this as the mogul scale? And I said, well, I don't know, William, what would you put it at? And he said, Dad, I think it's a 2C. And I went, that's exactly where I'd put it. Right on. Gave him a little fist bump and had a proud dad moment there. But Jake's going to put two asterisks against that, right? Yeah, because he's not, William's not one of us. He's not a gaming mogul. He's a gaming mogul offspring. Maybe in five years, be one of us. Yeah, but uh, I got to give that one a seal of approval. That's exactly the number I had in my brain. It's a 2C. All right, it's endorsed. It's endorsed. All right, Craig, what's your number, uh, your your medium weight game? Well, I'm going to have to couch this because I would say this is probably my top five games of all time. So it's not just for the criteria. It happens to be the criteria and an outright great game. It's a Neu High Matt initially designed and released by Chili Spiel, so designed by Klaus Zoch in 2007, more recently released as The Estates, released under Simply Complex by Capstone Games. Uh, In this game, you are property speculators trying to develop a housing estate using illicit funds. The the funds you've got are going to be worth nothing at the end of the game. You need to get real estate. And the game is scored by having the most points of area control on a board, for one of a better term. So you're going to build tower block and whoever has the highest value tower blocks, as defined by having the um, ownership of the penthouse, score for a given building. Oh, if only it were that friendly. Oh, yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, in- indeed. As I say score for a given building. I didn't say whether you're going to score positively or negatively. So <laughs> Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. Only rows that are complete are going to score positively. 
and the one incomplete row, and it can be two incomplete rows or even in some circumstances, three incomplete rows, are going to score negatively. This means that a winning score can actually be zero, as our good friend Dan Ferrot mentioned once. The thing about this game that I think makes it spot on for your criteria for this show, Mark, is the fact the way you drive the action is only one way only. It's an auction. We take turns being the auctioneer and we put something up for auction and go around the table. It's a one-time bid. And when it gets to the back to me, I have to have a basically have a chat with the highest bidder. Am I going to pay them the amount of money they define for the thing or are they going to pay me? You know, you'll be making bids going, I think Fred values that at, oh, I don't know, five marks or five bucks. Then someone to my left says, oh, I think it's worth seven. And actually, the guy who put it up for auction didn't want it at all. And he's just going to take your money. The other thing that makes this super clever, just like supremely clever, is that when you set the game up, the buildings come in various colours. And those colours are going to become owned by players. You don't start the game as a colour. You have no um, identity in the game, so to speak. But the first person to win the auction for a colour block will own that colour, right? And there's a sequence in. You have to bid on the blocks from the end of the display. So by that, I mean, if there's blocks deeper in, you've got to go through some auctions of other stuff before you can access it. So every game won't necessarily have a balanced spread. In one game, yellow can be rubbish. In another game, yellow can be bonds and worth a lot of money. So it's an auction game where the valuation exercise is really challenging. Seems simple, but when you start trying to map out the value of the the count of the blocks and the value of the blocks and the current board state of where they can be placed, who's got lower blocks and therefore may be able to snipe your thing, the dimensions on this thing just, like I say, it it looks really simple. It's like the climbers. And and unsurprisingly, picked up, you know, printed under the same publisher, right? Looks simple, is deep. Could not agree more. You, you, we should have just got delete all our old episodes about the estates and just put this one in. He did a better job than us. Yeah, I think that just became canon. Uh, Craig, do you have the Neuheimat version or do you have the new printing of the estates? Well, I made the Neuheimat version, inverted commas, where in between it being available. So Chili Spiel only did a limited number of them. My understanding is they cost a, a huge amount to produce versus what he was selling them for. And Chili Spiel wasn't around for that long, if memory serves. So it was a long time when the only way you could get it was from the rules that Klaus Sock said, you know, these are free to go and you can download these guys off Board Game Geek. Just made it out of wooden blocks. So uh, I had a friend 3D print some blocks. So I uh, made my own checks with, uh, with a few open source uh, drawing tools. And you know, my version is just as fun. It's just, I'll be honest, Clay's take, visually, Clay has taken it to another level. It's the, it's the production it deserves. The only thing I think that I disagree with is the rename. I kind of get it. In terms of audience in and the North American audience, the estates makes more sense. But in my heart, it will always be high mat. Have you played this game with uh, kind of more casual gamers? Because I've played this with pretty much every level of gaming interest and every single person has liked it. They just love the auction mechanism and everyone's able to figure out the game and internalize the implications of things. It's just the exercise and valuation and what people's motives are, which is so fun that you can hop into that quickly. Yeah, no, I have. I have. I've even introduced some, but somebody came down to Games Night for their first experience of modern gaming and they managed to hop into a game of this. The only thing I'll say is that it's opaque. So if I was going to add a third dimension to the mogul scale, it'd be color. And uh, the nearer red it is, the less obvious it is what an action, what the output of an action is. Because until you see that first scoring and you've played it through once, you know, the first time, you've got no idea what's a good decision in terms of final scoring. 
Fair. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So I guess it depends on how willing people are to live in that space. Some people have had to explain the implications of certain actions with bidding and some people have had haven't. So I have seen it go off a little bit thumb sideways in uh, one of my gaming groups that tends to like really deterministic, thinky action placed, you know, action selection kind of things. And that, you know, the more social soft aspect of picking something and auctioning maybe isn't their favorite mechanism, but they still enjoyed it. But I don't know that they would pick to play it. We had a sideways game where one guy's first experience of it was he won no companies. So he had to be the uh, guy subverting everybody's rows and trying to make it so everybody scored negative points. And like I say, he hated the experience because he hated not being able to be constructive. So I think you've got to be open to having a wildly different gaming experience. And that's for me why I rate it so highly. I can't think of another game that gives me this experience. Yep. Agreed. Agreed completely. That's Neuheimat by Klaus Zak and Chili Spiel. Where would you rate that on the mogul scale? Well, I think it's a 2E, okay? Because the rules are simple. There's only you know, there's only one way you drive the action. You you drive auctions and you you can embezzle money. Pretty simple. It's the the depth that boils off the back of that set of rules is huge. Agreed. Completely agreed. All right. So our third category here is going to be our heavyweight games. And these are games that are probably longer games, big epic games, and have kind of the full range of strategic decisions. I mean, these are full-on brain-burning, multidimensional things that hopefully have a pretty quick rules teach behind them. And I think we all found this to be one of the more challenging categories to do because big boxes tend to have both (laughs) big strategy and big rules. But there are definitely a few that fit this category. So Jake, what's your first pick in this category? My first pick is one of my favorite games, um, and we actually haven't been able to talk about it in depth on the podcast yet, so I'm very excited. I chose Indonesia, which is designed by Joran Druman and Joris Fersinga by Splatter Spellen. So what you're doing in Indonesia is you are businessmen who are trying to set up business empires, but the game is deceptively simple. And the way that the rulebook is written works really well with my brain, and I picked this game up, and I think I almost taught it out of the rulebook, and it suffered no ill issues. But what you're doing is there's a bunch of different categories of commodities, and there's cities on the board that want those things. And depending on how big the city is, is how many of those different categories of goods they want. And so it's really phasey, which is a term that I like to say a lot in game nights where all I'm going to do is I'm going to announce a phase, then we're all going to do that stuff in that phase. And it's just a deceptively simple game. But the really interesting thing about it is there is a mergers mechanism that I think really holds the game. So for each, let's say, plot of land that produces rice or gum or siap faji or spice or whatever you have, it has a certain base value. This base value is not worth any money at the end of the game, though, and the goal of this game is to get the most money. However, if we're going to merge two spice companies together to make one larger conglomerate, the base price will be factored at the valuation for the merged end good. So let's say that us three are playing a game. Mark owns 44 shares or four different plots, and I own three. So there's a total of seven plots. Each one of those has a certain value, and then we keep on bidding up more to be able to pay out the full amount. If I am bidding, I'm only actually going to pay Mark three-sevenths of the amount that I'm totally able to bid. While if Craig's going to buy it, he's going to have to pay Mark and I the amount to which that we own the resulting company or own the beginning companies that got merged to the end. And so what's cool about the fact that people have different vested interests and pay out different amounts, they need to have the amount of cash to be able to buy it. I'm only actually going to pay out lesser than Mark, for example, because I own more of the new company. 
um, or I started off with more of my company being the new company. So you can really game out the fact of merging companies that may or may not be beneficial to you or merging companies or starting a company just to throw it into somebody else's stuff so you can give them some money or give yourself money and pay it off. The amount of choice in this game is phenomenal, and I could probably rave about it for maybe an hour and a half, so I'll stop myself here. But Indonesia is one of the best games. I think it's probably my favorite financial game. I think it was my number two favorite game after um, leaving Earth. So what do you guys have to say about it? Greg, I'll let you go first on this one. Oh, we're both too polite, keepers. You can tell you're near the Canadian border. Sure. So it's <laughs> it's my favourite splotter by a long, long way. It sings my song in terms of it's got spatial side to it, you know, the node building piece. It's economically driven. The type of interaction that you have with other players during those mergers is hugely destructive. But there are counterplays to it, right? You can you can merge your own stuff. If you're driving up the auctioneering auctioning so you get a lot of money back out of the merger then cool, I'll, I'll flip that and I'll start a new business because the opportunity is always there on the board. I agree with you that the rules are light and I think it for me it qualifies for the list. The only issue I will say is if you're the guy doing the admin of paying the little taxes on the boats and trying to make sure that the boats aren't being carried overloaded because there's restrictions on how much stuff they can carry per transaction for one of a term, that's quite a taxing job if you're doing it by yourself or it's the first time you've done it. Correct. Yeah, it, that is the most confusing part about the game. And it's it's annoying. I've actually bought extra components to make it a little easier so we can see it. I actually co-opted a Seafarers of Catan so I can have the little boats and we can put them down once they're full, once they've already used all their hull. And we have a little nice. disc that we can put out that represent $5 to tax, but it can get a little bit confusing there. And yeah, you're, you're right. But if they see that happen once, usually you can explain it from that point on. I might advise if you are the person that's not as familiar with the game, maybe don't be the boat guy to start off and wait until the second round or something to get a shipping company. I went with a similar solution. I bought the Meeple Source components. So I bought their Indonesia kit that comes with cute little screen printed. And I've got their money disc because the money discs are small enough. They're not like full on size poker chips, right? And they're small enough. That you can stack them underneath the boats concerned and pay the player their dues, so to speak. Yeah, I I definitely think the stuff that comes in the box can be enhanced significantly. And the Catan Catan approach is the most economical way of doing it, totally. Right. Well, we did the same thing. I bought the resources. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but they just completely dropped the ball, at least on my printing. And the wooden components that are supposed to represent the goods are oversized by like 400%. They're giant. Yeah, size your fist job. I know, they're hilarious. I actually was going to do a print-and-play version of this game using the redraw of that to scale to the oversized component. So I was going to make Mega Indonesia and be able to pull out at conferences or something like that. <laughs> you know, and have literally like a 12-foot board or something. And I, I always thought that would have been epic. I'm going to say this carefully. I ended up trading away my copy of Indonesia, even though I love the game. I've got somewhere to be. I've got somewhere to be, guys. Sorry, podcast over. <laughs> That's over. Well, get out of here. Mark, you're no longer my friend. Okay, so it's canceled. I, I got a, I got a unopened game for almost nothing. And it sat on my shelf for a year. And I realized that there's no time I'm not going to play this with Jake. And Jake owns a really blinged out nice version of it. That you can borrow that anytime. I can borrow anytime so. I want. So this was really just a financial consider- space making consideration. But I love the game. It's a bit like saying it's the most nimble sumo wrestler. It's a big, heavy, brain-burny game, but it's a very nimble, heavy, brain-burny game. There is some opacity around understanding how those mergers work, and that's going to be the tripping point for most new people in there. The rest of it's pretty straightforward, but I know the first time I played it, I kind of, oops, I won, and never really completely understood how the mergers work. The best accessory everybody can put in their copy is a times table, right? 
So no one's having to sit there, do the time seven. Oh, there's, there's 11 of these rice paddies. Do you remember your 11 times table? Whilst you're trying to make other complex decisions at the same time, because those bids can get real high. So it's not just about knowing 11 times 10. It's about knowing 11 times 33. Getting that out of the game always helps. Usually what we end up doing is just say we bid per unit and then multiply it. But it's the same exact thing. There's so much arithmetic in this game that you can easily take out and just get in the strategy of the game. That's Indonesia by Splatter Spellin, 2005 release. Where are we going to rate this baby? That's a three all the way. What do you say? Yep, I'd go three on the rules. Yep, the things the players do probably would be lower than a three. But someone's got to drive the system, right? So that brings it right. up. Yeah, if this was a computer game or something where you just hit click resolve or something to ship everything, that'd be interesting. But yeah, it's it's a 3E for me. Perfect. What's yours, Mark? I also went with old hotness on my uh, punches above its weight scale. I went with one that has my favorite German name ever. This game was released in Germany as Funkenschlag, which sounds like a disco located in Munich. And it's not. It's a... Uh... <laughs> This is Power Grid by Freedom and Freeze and Rio Grande Games here in the U.S. A classic by any stretch of the imagination. This game is a game that a lot of people have played and a lot of people understand that is weirdly somewhat new to me. This is one of those games that I kind of got passed over on, added to my collection, and it probably sat on my shelf of shame by anybody's definition for five years, maybe. Have played it multiple times in the past couple of years and absolutely love it. What you do in Power Grid is you're trying to run a power network around whatever country map you happen to be playing on. You have an auction round every time you have a new set of power plants to bid on, and those power plants determine what resources you need and how much power you can produce. And then you generate money based on that, and that money allows you to build power lines to power up additional cities. Where this game starts really getting strategically complex is in a whole bunch of areas. For one, What do you value each of those different power plants at? That's a big part of it. Then you don't really want to be in first place all the time because that makes you last in the action order. And if you're last in the action order, now suddenly you're buying up all the resources that are left over after everybody else bought the cheap resources to power your power plant. So being out in the lead is a pretty damning situation when you're playing this game. And game ends up when you power a certain number of cities, depending on how the number of players go. Well, let me rephrase that. It ends when you do that. But to win, oftentimes you have to be over that fact. There's a ton of really challenging mental decisions to make all down the road in this game for a game that really doesn't have a lot of rules weight towards it. Jake, I know this is a favorite of yours. What do you think? I like it a lot. I actually was thinking the entire time you're describing this is why have I only played this game once? And I would just love to play it again. We haven't tried any of the other maps, or at least I haven't. And I think it'd be something to play again. I love the auction. I liked how the different commodities flowed and certain ones went up and went down. I really liked how you could speculate on that and really carve out a niche. This game's great. Let's play it more, Mark. Come on. Yeah, and I actually have some extra maps now. And the other nice thing about this game is it scales really well all the way up to six players. So, yeah, this probably needs to just be an auto-include. Craig, you've played Power Grid. It's nasty at six, guys. All I'll say is you'll go home angry. I mean, it's good angry, (laughs) but you'll go home angry. It's tight. So... I went through a renaissance of replaying this again early this year and uh, introducing some new people to it. And I was just remember going through the manual and just being shocked at how few rules there are. Like the flow of this game is so simple. And yet the quality of decision in terms of competing on the board for position during each era to make sure you get enough properties, the player valuation on the power plants, like you said, Mark, 
is a nuanced decision that you can just, you know, new players will just buy every power plant going. Yeah, I'll keep buying everything, but that's a real easy way to set yourself up to lose hard. In terms of your scale and it hitting the brief, this is spot on. Yeah, I think we would rate this thing uh, a 3D on the mogul scale. It's not a five-minute teach, but it's something that even a moderate weight gamer could pick up and understand pretty clearly. And you're not going to play it enough to really probe the depths of all the strategic decisions available on this game. I'd say as well, the other thing that helps, Mark, is that you can step through the phases. It's not one of these ones where you have to teach it all at once, right? I mean, you oh, can. that's a good point, yeah. But, you know, and the phases are small enough and atomic enough, and that pun was clearly intended, that <laughs> you can learn the... Yeah, you can learn the entirety of one phase before you step onto the next. Like I say, I've got lots of time for it. I think the only criticism I've got of the game is that amongst high-level players, it can degenerate to trying to stay furthest back to a certain extent. That becomes a hyper-focus of the game. How do I get nearly as much money as you but retain priority? So, But, you know, you've got to play it a lot to get there, I think. Yeah, and that's a super important phase of the game. So Power Grid. Also known as Funkenschlag from Germany by Freedom and Freeze, Rio Grande Games, 3D and the Mogul Scale. So Craig, what would be your large choice for this list? I really agonized on this, but in the end, uh, after evaluating a few and realizing, like you said, that sometimes there's a lot of instrumentation in these big box games, the only one I could stand behind was Brass Lancashire. So it was released in 2007, originally uh, designed by Martin Wallace, currently available through Roxney Games, as, as it was kickstarted last year, I believe. I've got to say, this game is a classic. Uh, Anybody who's been in the hobby for any amount of time will have heard about it. But for those of you who haven't heard about it, in this game, we are financiers of the Industrial Revolution, trying to make as many victory points as possible over the course of two eras. Uh, The first era being the development of the, the canal network, and the second era being the development of the train network. Uh, We'll be trying to get victory points by placing the various uh, logistics pieces on the board I just mentioned. We'll also be trying to build factories and export their contents abroad. We'll also be making raw materials, which will be used for building said factories, for developing our own private technology tree, for want of a better term. It plays over the course of about 90 minutes. The interface is a combination of Well, it's card play, primarily is the interface, so every turn you have to discard a card to make an action. The card you discard can just be an action point if you're trying to take some of the generic actions, like taking loans from the bank. Alternatively, you can choose to play it for its function, so it might be a place card, which means it lets you do something in a place, like build an industry in a place. Or it might be an industry card, which means that you can place an industry of that type anywhere on the board connected to your network. The interactivity on this for a Euro is huge. My ability to block you off on the board so you can't expand your network any further. Maybe I use your resources, flipping your tile and giving you some benefits, but enabling my more profitable endeavor and potentially blocking the thing you had planned to do. Then there's a race condition where maybe I export stuff to the foreign market for greater reward, starving that market out before you get a chance to do it. The interactivity on this for a Euro of that era is significant. And I think that is why, for me, it's my favorite in this category. In terms of fitting the brief, because there's only about five types of actions you do on your turn, and it's entirely possible to muddle through your first game of this, still partake in the activity, without having to think too much about the massively deep strategic possibilities, I think it, I think it brings it down on the scale you know, to a lower number. 
I have to caveat, I only think the Lancashire variant qualifies for the free because I think the the Birmingham variant has a bit more going on. I'm not going to say it's any strategically deeper because I don't actually believe that, but there's more things you can do. So you can easily overload a person a little bit more with the different types of industries and what's going on. Agreed. Yeah, that's an interesting take on the difference. And I hadn't really quantified the difference in amount of strategies and so forth, different paths between Lancashire and Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham, pardon me. I actually have an expert online right now, so I can't. Oh, God, yeah, he's going to get mad pa- at us. Pardon. Pardon. You're fine. Oh, you know, uh, living in the States here, we've got Birmingham, Alabama that we've heard all our whole life. So that's a hard habit to break. I do a bit of holidaying over in your uh, part of the world and my accent when I come home, I've it's just easier for me to adapt and speak slightly American in terms of my inflections than it is to carry on saying it right. It's cool. I've been called Craig by my American colleagues for years, so it's fun. <laughs> so interestingly, I've probably played Birmingham several more times than I have Lancashire, and I really want to go back and revisit Lancashire now that I've played Birmingham a bunch of times because I, I know there's a level of savagery <laughs> with Lancashire that doesn't exist in Birmingham and uh, anxious to re-experience that. Right. And I used to be very much anti that idea. But the more and more I hear about it and the more and more I hear comparisons and by playing the Agricola versus Caverna recently does make me want to revisit it. And I think it'd be fun. But I still think you should pull the wool over my eyes and just say you're bringing brass and not say which one. And I'll just have to agree to it on that on that merit. Yeah. And I think uh, I think your rating's right on the money on that one, too, uh, making sure that we're on brief here. It is a surprisingly simple game, given the the level of brain burn that this one has attached to it. It's a pretty quick rules teach. It's uh, not a long playtime with new players. I think that that playtime could be highly variable based on the analysis paralysis inherent in your group, especially Lancashire, because, you know, there's some painful decisions in that one. I found the trick to try and reduce the analysis paralysis is to not not nastily, but make the statement that it doesn't matter how long you look at those cards, they're going to be the same cards. <laughs> we do the same thing. I keep on asking people if they have money on the game that I don't know about. Why are they considering things for so long? But uh, that's a good call. A little prickliness goes a long way. <sighs> yeah. Well, I, I have some friends that it doesn't matter. They'd get AP on tic-tac-toe. But yeah, 90 minutes for a game that has that much meat to it is a great fit. I, I do own both versions of the Rocksleep Games versions of it. I do own both Lancashire and Birmingham side by side. And this one needs more love. No question about it, because I'm a huge fan of the Birmingham variant. It wasn't just because it had poker chips, by the way, that I picked this one. I've got to say, I'm just looking at the numbers on this on the screen right now. And I've come with the new hotness with Brass Lancashire. Everything else is older. Yeah. In, and that the, was, in this category. Crazy. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? All the games I chose aren't even from this decade. Yeah. I was laughing about that one. I kind of looked and I went, Oof, boy, this is the old hotness list, isn't it? Do you think there's a commonality that's kind of ripping throughout these? I, I think I've seen a commonality between these titles for the most part, certainly the medium up ones. And for me, it's the fact that the player definitely makes what's going on behind people's eyes and, you know, what the player makes a bigger part of the game than legal restrictions. You know, in Brass Lancashire, someone's intent, for want of a better term, like what they're building up to is more, is almost more important than any given rule. You look at Neuheim Matt, that's all about the people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The rules get out of your way as quick as possible in the estates or Neuheim Matt. Yep. Completely Definitely agree. the case in Power Grid. A lot of these games tend to be auction games as well. Indeed. I was going to say, player valuation seems to be a common theme as well, interestingly. Right. That maybe it's just because we all really like that aspect in games. Well, that's Brass Lancashire. Recently re-released by Roxley Games, originally released in 2007 by Martin Wallace and Warfrog Games. Great choice. Thank you. 
Well, we have gone way over our one hour <laughs> mandate once again. I promise you, we will get better at this in the future. Well, it's, it's not every day that you got Craig on the on the line. We got to make his time valuable. You know, you know what? We are right on our half hour per person par level. Yeah, we're no longer an hour. We're a per person. That's fine. Just edit me out. It'll be fine. <laughs> That'll be fine. It'll just be like, who's this Craig guy they keep on referring to? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the episode. We really, we really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you in person for once instead of through the computer. My pleasure. Sure. I mean, hopefully we can return the favor sometime. Have you guys talking about train game on our show? Right. We like those. I didn't, I didn't know that you like those. We like those. We oh, would okay. absolutely love to. And uh, before you go, by all means, plug yourself again. Sure. So uh, if you want to hear a podcast dedicated to train games, then go on to our website, thetrainrush.com. And then you can see all the various ways of getting in touch with us. I won't take more of uh, the gaming mogul's time than that. Just go to that one place and you can self-serve. Awesome. Great. All right, everybody. Hey, Thank you for joining us once again. For the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark. I'm Jake. And he's Craig. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.